Welcome to episode 41 of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. Maintaining good code quality is extremely important and it helps us in our day-to-day jobs. In this episode, we'll be sharing our thoughts on code maintenance. Before we get started, let's go around the table and give brief introduction to today's panelists. Mars, you want to start it off? Sure. Hi, I'm Mars Julian. I'm a senior code janitor at Netflix. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my name is Augustus. I'm a front-end engineer at Evernote. Jim Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. Stacey London, front-end engineer at Atlassian. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Bugs. Bugs. So if any of us say the word bugs, we will take a drink. All right, well, let's kick off and talk about code maintenance. Why is it important to you? I like to save myself from future me. Um, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So I, I think, well, a lot of people will say that code maintenance is kind of um, a burden sometimes because I think they think about it that it's just for other people, keeping it clean and easy to follow. But also I find that you know future me six months from now has no idea why she wrote what she's writing currently. So it's it's kind of future proofing and also just, you know, you need to be able to figure out what you were thinking you know, when you wrote the code. And I think that's that's pretty important. It's not just for other people, it's for you as well. Definitely think, I think we actually talked a little in onboarding, but having like really bad code maintenance can lead to really bad practices for new devs. I know like when we had a bunch of new devs start, they were kind of like, oh, okay, so I'll just do what you guys were doing before, right? And we were like, um, yeah, about that. <laughs> so if you have, it's like if you have bad right, patterns, yeah. everyone follows. Right, them. right, right. Or and if you don't want them to follow those bad patterns, it's like really hard. You need to like somehow. Just, trust me, just do it. Just fix it. Just don't go through it. It was a nightmare. Yeah, copy and paste. Like, what's the what's the? Yeah. I don't know if there's a name for it, but like, if you write code, it will be copy and pasted by somebody oh, else yeah. as they like build something else out. I think it also allows you to move quicker. And the fact is like by that is like, yes, it might take some more time to clean up code and that is taking time. But in the end, it causes you not to be bogged down and having to fix bugs. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Yeah, and hopefully you're able to actually move a lot quicker because you're not having to deal with broken things completely all the time. So I think if you've ever been on like a support team or like done support work, so some people are purely on support teams. Sometimes they're like, they also, they do project work and they support the things that they wrote. And if you've ever been in that place of, you know, a customer calls in some major, major bug, major issue. Cheers. 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 <laughs> I thought you were going to try and avoid saying it. <laughs> I was going to try. I we have a lot of liquor here. It's okay. <laughs> if you have code that's well structured or easier to, to a pattern applied to it, so you know where to look to find um, something that just saves you time, you can solve the problem faster and everybody's happier in the end. Yeah. Like quick show of hands. How much time do you spend actually writing code? Say like 50%, would you say, or? Maybe like 30%. Yeah. 50 or lower. Yeah. So you all are senior engineers are really, people have been doing this for a while, but if you ask people coming out of college or out of code school, how much time are you gonna spend writing code? They're like 80%, 90%. 100% of the time. 100% of the time. I just like nonstop code all day. But that's not true. We, We spend most of our time reading code and trying to read other people's code, trying to read our own code. But we always forget that because we're always like, oh, new React, new Angular, new Vue, new over whatever just came out yesterday, because I'm sure something came out yesterday. <laughs> but well, like, we, yeah, we spend all the time thinking about that, but not enough on, hey, I'm going to have to go back and read this at some point. Because most of what we do is actually code maintenance. I think it was like a study in, 
maybe the 80s, you know, back when they did hardcore programming at IBM. And they said on average, a programmer there in like a 10 hour day only does like three hours of coding, which is just, when you actually think about that, it's crazy because we get paid to write code, but not really, we get paid to understand code and then build on that. I think there's also a lot of planning that goes into it as well, right? Like it's, you're not necessarily working in the code, you're also working with your colleagues to understand how can we write this so it doesn't need to get fixed five days from now. It's like, how does this actually stay scalable and how do we maintain it? I think scalability is important. We haven't really talked about that, but that's a really good reason for making maintainable code is that you're going to keep adding new features. And if you don't have a good pattern or a good uh, consistent pattern in place, it's going to be very difficult to extend, especially if you get like a really big team and everyone starts contributing to the same code base. If you don't have that pattern in place, then everyone starts doing kind of their own thing and then it just becomes not maintainable. No, that's a good point. And I like that you brought up the teams too, because I think, you know, as a product grows or application, website, whatever we're talking about at this point for code, as that grows, that becomes hard to scale. But also as a team grows, that becomes even harder to scale. Because like even what Augustus said is like you have someone new start and if they see really bad code, it's just the, it builds off on bad code on bad code. That's the habits just keep growing instead of getting to at least set a baseline where it's like, okay, no, this is consistent, clean. Now we can start hiring people. It's almost like you need to have that before adding more people to the code base. Yeah, I think the extensibility part, like the scalability and extensibility is, is really one of the key things to it. I think there's like the short-term and the long-term extensibility because at Netflix we do a lot of A-B tests. So we need to be able to write things that can be like very short-term rearranged and work for what we're working on at the time. But it also needs to have a, you know, a long lifespan and then be able to kind of support the product in the long-term, which if you don't have stuff that's easy to follow or easy to build off of that becomes a nightmare and it, it's just like you know this tangled web that we essentially weave for ourselves <laughs> and <laughs> i mean you know there are like to jeff's point of not coding a lot sometimes it's a whole day of just trying to reverse engineer someone else's code because that's often the best time the best way that features are specced because the code lives a bit longer than than some of the specs do so I was going to ask about that because because Netflix does so many A/B tests and recently like we've been doing like a, the product that I'm on they they do more like kind of growth experiments and some of that code you know may like be churned out fairly quickly it's not necessarily following all the best practices and patterns but you know there's kind of this pressure to get it out so that you know it, sh it shows up for people and oh it's right. temporary we're going to rip it out but I'm like are we going to rip it out and I feel like I haven't been there long enough to kind of see that whole full cycle that that code will actually get cleaned up. Right. Um, and so I worry about the maintainability of that code if that turns into a thing that might live on longer. And I, I'm curious, like, how so, you guys kind of... Like, what I'll tell, like, our team often is, like, yes, we do a ton of A-B tests. And I think it's okay to cut corners on an A-B test. Like, you know, maybe it's not the best well-written code because a lot of times we do throw it out. It doesn't last forever. The minute it's going to last forever, we should take the time like, okay, we've deemed this as a winning feature that needs to go out. We need to take the time to actually write that properly and clean it up. And so that way it allows us to move quickly and not worry about maintaining this code for a long time. And so you don't have to spend as much time finessing it. And then once you are ready, like this is an actual winnable thing that we want to roll out to like all customers or live on forever, 
spend the time on that. And it, it could be two weeks just to make sure that that feature is bulletproof and really well written. That's okay. Because if you did that for every little AB test, well, then you're not learning and you're not testing as quickly. So I think there's a trade off there where that is the one point where I might be like, yeah, you don't have to worry as much about it being maintainable at that point. But if it's going to live on, yeah, we should really spend the time to do it. I think to add to that as well, though, at Netflix, we do have a mechanism that allows us to silo some of our really crappy test-related code that makes it just really easy to kind of turn it off. So even though, yeah, yeah, we get it out quickly, but we also kind of put safeguards in place that mean that we don't always ship the terrible code or that it's really easy to tell like where the lines between the feature and the, te the things that you're testing are so that it's easier to clean up later. But that itself requires some sort of a, you know, a code maintenance step because in order to put this infrastructure in place, someone then had to go through and not only tell all the engineers that you need to be more diligent about where you're putting your non-maintainable code, but also probably to kind of like silo some of the stuff that already existed in the code base. And I think it's really interesting because it's a, it's a good example of how maintenance kind of begets other maintenance in a sense and that they put in this like really interesting mechanism that helps us help ourselves. So yeah, there's thought, a lot of thought put into that up front. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. And we have a team that supports that too, which is great. So we've talked a lot about why we would actually want to maintain code. What are some ways to help us write maintainable code? I think one of them is consistency. There's, in psychology, you guys heard of the concept of cognitive dissonance, mm -hmm. where it's like you have two different ideas in your head of what should happen and what is actually happening, and just your brain to use millennial speak, literally can't even. It can't even understand what's happening. So being consistent helps. Like even if it's a, a really silly pattern of, I don't know, underscoring all your variable names, something like that, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But if you're consistent about it, that helps someone else coming through your code saying like, okay, I don't really know what's going on, but I, I know they're following this pattern. They always follow this pattern. That really helps. But mainly for me, writing good maintainable code is just, it's just habits. It's good habits of like commenting your code, don't try to be too clever and just naming your variables properly. Little stuff like that, it just, they're not lessons you can learn. It's just things you have to do over time. That's good maintainable code. I'm glad you brought up the comments because <laughs> I think that's one that we all should do and do more of. I am so guilty for not doing it. Even in my own code where someone else, I think, ah, no one else is having to read this. Guess who does have to go read that like a month later? It's me. <laughs> and I can't remember what the hell I was doing. With a simple comment, it probably would have helped me to understand that. And I think to even to your point of, like you said, naming variables or, yeah, I mean, even naming files, like consistency on that. What about just good names for like any like a function or anything that you're writing is like a method that you're actually calling appropriately. Like, what does it do? Does it get file? Well, then maybe that's what it should be called. <laughs> Not like, hello, gem. Like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Least write the name of it. And then people who you may not even need a comment at that point it's like i can read it and go oh well, i i understand what that method's doing so commenting is is a form of time travel for instance if i put 20 dollars in my savings and i get it out 10 years and it's worth 30 dollars like oh yeah i've helped my future self out that's time travel commenting is the same thing it's yeah i know exactly what i'm talking about right now because i've spent four months on this project and i know exactly what's happening in all these parts but Next month, I won't, I won't have any clue. So I'm just helping myself out. It's like putting something in a vault and then taking it out later and being like, oh yeah, here's the map to what I was doing. And it's so, it's hard to do. And I think that's what separates a junior engineer from a senior engineer is that you think about things like that versus a junior engineer. It's like, get out the door, pass all the tests, cool. 
senior engineer's like, no, I'm gonna have to come back and fix this at some point. So let me help myself out and write comments. Or someone's gonna come along and say like that product manager's like, yeah, we're changing that all. And you're like, oh great, I was working. <laughs> it did pass all the tests, but now I have to change it. So it's, it is nice to be able to read it. And one more thing on comments, cause it's like, I, I have said this over many years, I've just comment your code. It's the s simplest, easiest thing you can do to write maintainable code. I've seen the difference between someone getting a job and not getting a job based on the comments in their code tests. Cause you can write amazing code, but I see a million, or Ryan sees a million code tests a day. It's like, I don't know what you're trying to do, but comments are like, oh, okay, this is like a good pattern. I've never seen it before, this is brilliant. For someone it's like, oh, here you go, it's done. I look at it and I'm like, I don't know what's going on, pass. And it's just, it's not fair, but it's also not fair for me to try to figure out what you're trying to do. Well, I think you're also in that point too, is you're in an interview, you're trying to show how you would work with another engineer. And that is really important. You're saying how important the comments are for not only yourself to read later, but also for like fellow teammates. And I think that is actually important. So yeah, put comments in your uh, code exercise. I'll, uh, I'll add comments to code when I like traverse it and figure it out. And it wasn't obvious to me. I'll be like, okay, I add the comments because someone else is going to do this again. And the, one of my favorite things I've seen is by someone else that was doing kind of what I did. They like added comments to code they were trying to figure out. And there's this, my favorite comment of all time was just right above this function. I have no idea what this function is. Doing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, at least they made it more clear that it was very unclear. Right. <laughs> I, I actually respect that because there have been definitely tons of times I've looked at code, like really old code. And it's just like, I have no idea why this is here. So I had to like go get blame, find the guy who wrote it and then ask them or like dig through like the Jira ticket number of where, when they added that. And it's like, it's just so much time is wasted just to like figure out why this was here. And sometimes it's like really important too. It's like, and which is even more reason why you should leave a comment to like, don't delete this. Do not remove this it. This is important. <laughs> it's actually a concept. It's this is a little obscure. Sorry if I go off the rails, but it's called Chesterson's fence. You ever heard of that? No. So it's it's the idea of there's a fence out in the middle of nowhere, and the naive approach is someone walks up and says, "Why is there a fence? Let's get rid of it." But the smarter person's like, "There's probably a reason for this fence. Let's understand why it's here, and then we can debate whether or not to get rid of it." And it's a little off the rails, but it's the same thing in code. You're just like, "I'm going to delete this thing," and then suddenly the system goes down. Um, that happened three years ago in the stock market. Uh, it was like a hedge fund trading company. Someone like disabled this block of code because they're like, "I don't know what this does," but it was a safety check. And $60 million later, hedge companies out of business because the person didn't comment their code and they just deleted this code block arbitrarily because they didn't, someone else came along and didn't know what it did and said, this is dumb, why is this here? But <laughs> like, this is real life, this is what we do every day and wow. that's a real thing that happens and it's silly. And I actually like deleting code. It feels oh. really, really mm. good. <laughs> Maybe not $60 million though. <laughs> Challenge to you, Mars, I guess this is Stacey because I've had this conversation around before. What do you say to people who say good code should be self-documenting? Because I've heard that so mm, many times. No. Wait, can you clarify? I actually think that includes comments. Yes. If you're, if you're yeah, self-documenting, yeah. I don't think the code should kind of speak for itself. I think either you've got really well-named variables, which are like, I am this variable that does this, at which point that's a very long variable name, but either that <laughs> or you've got comments. But I think good code includes, comments shouldn't be excluded from code. People, a lot of people, I think, they're like, oh, comments has nothing to do with code. And I think it has everything to do with it for you know all of these reasons that we've been talking about. 
Can I say, Mars, you have beautiful comments. I, I know when I'm reading your code, so I know the comments and like the quality of the comments. Well, That's pretty awesome too. When you actually know someone's style of code, you don't even yeah. need to like get blamed. Yeah, Mars, right? I, I know it's pretty Mars hilarious too when you put out a pull request or anyone puts out a pull request. It's like six lines of comments and like three <laughs> lines of code. But I, I actually have to say that like the the shorter a function, sometimes the more comments there should be, and then maybe the longer the function, the less. I mean, it really depends on on what you're writing, but I think. A lot of engineers I've seen have tried to make like really just like really short functions that are like one liners, like literally all of the Lodash functions chained together. And at the end, there's a result. And you're like, huh? And then, you know, later someone else would write it and they kind of they parse it out. Like, OK, this is the beginning. This is the result. Here's like the middle. And literally the names will reflect that of like where they're trying to get to with their operations. And I think that sometimes that's really good good self-documenting code but it's literally in english variable but you could also and you could still add right. comments right, to that exactly. like i think it should have both i think yeah, that's definitely. a good way to put it definitely. i've written comments that are longer than the function yeah. yeah because there's just so much that went into that and yeah there and maybe there's a weird thing that i did in there that is quote self-documenting like it makes sense like you could look at it and say like that of course makes sense but you say like well i added that actually because i ran into this other problem and it's necessary because of x it's helpful yeah, like, I feel like your code, because well, when you say self-documenting, like, your code should be clear enough in what it's doing, but then, like, I feel like comments serve a se separate purpose and, like, giving context as to why you have that code. Like, you might be doing a code that does something very specific, like, oh, deletes this from, like, state or whatever, and then it's like, oh, the reason this code is here is because it caused this really weird regression for this very specific browser that blah, 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 yes. like, right? And it's just like, that's like where, like... Yeah, because then at that point, you right? might drop support for that could have been an IE6 issue, and yeah, you're like, exactly. we don't support it anymore, so I feel comfortable removing this line of code now because we don't support that anymore, right. which it's, is very nice. Exactly. exactly. And, and there's not really any way to make your code say that. that. No, like, you could call your variables IE6 cool <laughs> browser CSS fix variable name. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. So another thing that I feel is very useful, but I think you can get carried away with is breaking things up into smaller digestible chunks of code. And, you know, with things like Browserfy, Webpack, everything, we can, you know, concatenate our files, which is great into like one file. We're not loading that all down to the user, but can we get carried away on that? Do you guys feel like it, we can create too small of functions or methods that gets too confusing at that point and less maintainable? I was gonna say, this is actually pretty interesting because um, there's that famous GitHubber, Sendre Horace, or what's his name? I know who you're talking about, yeah. but I can't. Where yeah. he, he has like thousands of NPM packages, yeah. thousands of GitHub repos, and some of them are like very, very trivial functions. They do like, one they do thing. Very one specific yeah. thing, but he like his philosophy is like, that's okay. That's like the whole point. Like literally everything that you want can be modular and then like you just like test it a bunch and like let every function like do one specific thing and then you kind of have like this whole like exploratorium of like all these different modules and even though they all do like little trivial things you can use them all to do like one big thing or something i think you hit on there too is you can write a unit test that checks to that one thing does it do this right. great it passes i think like the small the, the small maintainable functions are really good for usability but also sometimes it can be really good for separating out the logic like we do a lot now as ui engineers talking about separating out the rendering logic from the business logic and i think that small maintainable functions can actually act as a really solid layer in between because then your ui will call the helper and then 
the helper takes care of, oh, here's where I get my data from. And all of a sudden, you no longer have to care if that ever changes. And, and it's really weird to write a one-liner that's just like, oh, I'm just basically passing this value back. But you can really kind of insulate yourself from problems in other areas in your code base or bugs. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> one little level of complexity that I've run into by having things being broken up very small is um, if internally you have like a private, private NPM, and you start breaking all your stuff up into teeny little packages and like you're working on a project where you need to modify code in like several of those packages. Um, I've run into this case where I'm just like, we're using yarn. So I have to yarn link all these things so that I can work on them locally at the same time. And there's like some yarn link inception happening where like the thing I yarn linked needs to yarn link to this other thing. And like <laughs> in that scenario, it kind of gets a little annoying that everything is so modularized that I have to do all this finagling with the, the module loader stuff that it's not so easy to just like dev and like get going. But um, I think the benefits of it on the flip side, aside from that, are probably good. Like all the things that we've mentioned. There's a limit. Though, like I agree with what you all are saying, but I think there's a limit on modularity where it's just, yeah, this is a bit excessive. Like I don't need a separate file for every one of these things. And then where it gets like hand wavy, where it's like, what is good code maintenance? How do you know when to do it? I don't know. Just don't be too clever with it. Don't try to be too modular. Yeah. Optimize for you to build it. Optimize for your future self having to fix this. Like, would you want to have to go back later and fix this one thing? And I don't know. That's kind of my general rule. I think also that leads into a conversation about how like code maintenance is ongoing. It's not like you start a project and you like set everything up perfectly and you're like, okay, now it will never change. And and to that point, I mean, Jem's right. Like you, you write a bunch of utilities that work for your use case. And as other people come along, they also do code maintenance on what you've done previously. And I think that's when it starts to make sense to break stuff out, but only as it, as it's reused. I think someone who goes into a project, like I'm going to make this the most reusable, awesome, clean thing ever. And it's like, well, no one's reusing it so why is everything in like 20 different files and I think that I think it's ongoing and I think you always need to assess when you start something like code maintenance or some sort of cleanup is an important first step in that project to set yourself up for success as well as the code base in the long term I like that too and I think actually another point too is yeah if no one's using that one function then why are you moving it into separate files right. but the mini even your own code if it's starting to reference do something similar that's where you might say oh I'm gonna clean this up a little bit and make it into its own separate right. component. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You probably, if you if you ran across someone who was doing that, like Stacey, someone, someone starts working with you, like, oh yeah, I'm gonna take a week to clean up all this code and migrate these separate functions. You'd be like, why do you need to be doing it? Like, again, it's so loose, there's not a hard definition, but you have to pick when to do it and when not to do it. Because we have to we still have to keep building stuff can't always just write maintainable code all the time we just have to keep going we need to get things out the door we have to get things out the door so we get paid to do yeah so there's a balance yeah, yeah. which i think is why I like that upfront stuff is so important like if you are starting something brand new or like a new repo a new web app that you try and apply the patterns so like the earlier question was like how do you like what do you use to help you write maintainable code i think patterns like some of the books that i have read over time that have really helped me with that were like maintainable JavaScript by Nicholas Zakas, like how to think about everything in terms of reusability. Like those are really helpful gui like guidelines. Um, Smacks, like if we're writing really That's reusable CSS. Um, those kind of books and 
people that think about structure for maintainability, those have been very important for me um, as a developer. And, and, and the libraries are making it way easier now. Like at the time when I read maintainable JavaScript, I was like still in jQuery land and doing like spaghetti jQuery. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> what if we do some namespacing and we do, you know, organize our code in object literals and blah, blah, blah. And that shifted my, the way that I wrote stuff. And the same thing with Smacks and, now we have React that kind of forces you into like more modularity by default. And so some of the libraries are helping you write maintainable code just out of the box. Yeah, it's like the best practice when you're writing React. Back in the jQuery days, we didn't have that. <laughs> so kind of good segue into like a question that I'm interested in is what's the worst code that you've come across? And maybe it is jQuery days. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many examples, but so a lot of it in my own, you know, I try to be too clever. Most of it. For the love of God, if you're writing regular expressions, comment your regular expressions. It's like, it's so easy. I'm not a computer. I can't be like, oh yeah, I know what this does because I'm, I don't spend my time. You don't, you don't study those like every night before oh, you go well, to bed? I do. Yeah. It's actually a tattoo. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah. Just like, it's so easy. Comment your regular expressions. It's, it's so terrible. And it's like a super long one and it's just not common. And you're like, okay, I can put this into maybe a regular expression parser and maybe try to figure out what's happening. And even then, you're still chancing it. It's never perfect. No. Yeah. Oh, my God. Come on, your regular expression. Like, it's so easy. If you take one thing away from this episode. <laughs> it's 30 seconds to write a comment. Okay, sorry. That's my rant. I think one of the hard things is, is when you're um, when you start working on code, we've already talked about how it's a lot about reading code, especially it's either written by you six months ago, a completely different person, or you being a completely different person or one of your coworkers. And it's for me, it's been really tough. Um, like we go back to the modularity and the reusability and you have all these like utilities, but the minute that you have to chase through like six files to actually figure out what's going on, because you know, something calls a helper, the helper calls a helper, that helper calls yet another <laughs> helper. Um, and you like literally keep going down this rabbit hole and I'll say that following breadcrumbs is one of the ways I've learned JavaScript the best, but this is not the type of breadcrumb I want to follow. <laughs> this is like, you know, Alice da going down the hole and taking um, the drugs. So <laughs> that's really, it's, it's been, that's one of the things I hate the most. Um, so, you know, modularity, yes, to a point, um, but the minute you have to go chasing something down like that, I think it's just really hard to follow. I think for me, I have two examples, and one was not an example of worst code, but it was more about like worst documentation, not understanding how the code works. So it was, it was I think it was Perl, and it was for like some batch process that was like loading data into a system overnight. And this, this was written in Perl, and it was probably beautifully written, and I'm sure people that write Perl were like, oh, gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, online, beautiful. And I'm like, as gibberish to me, I, I, wasn't, I didn't even know Perl, and I was trying to like get my head around it. So I, I drew a bunch of pictures. I drew a bunch of documentation about like the flow of data and how it got from this Perl thing to like in the database. And I created all this documentation around it. And I'm like, you know, this wasn't bad code, but it wasn't documented, and there was no pictures and nothing explaining what it did. So like... Bad code doesn't even have to be like poorly written. It just can be obscure and too clever. Yeah, because even if like, you should be able to jump on another language and somewhat understand it, but those comments would have gone a long way. Like you could understand it a lot easier. Super helpful. And yeah. then the second one was, um, and this just made me laugh because it was like this terrifying piece of code that was, it was JavaScript and it was surrounded by, it was an if block and it just said, if true, Oh, do this oh thing, and I was God. like, "What? Goodness. What is this?" I'm like, "I don't understand." I'm like, "I will never touch this because it seems something is very wrong." 
Why would why would anybody need to do that? I don't know. I like what you said. Like bad code isn't necessarily poorly written. It can just be like overly clever. Where you're like, oh, my favorite code is the ones where I've seen where it's like doing bitwise operations on things. Yep. And it's just like someone will post a link to a Stack Overflow. Like this is actually faster than doing it like a standard for loop or something. I'm like, cool. Doesn't matter. Like I'm taking it out because like it, it doesn't need to happen. I well, and how much are you optimizing for performance there? I actually would at that point probably optimize for readability. It's going to save time and headaches for other people or yourself working on it. The what you gain in the performance, I don't even know if you would even notice it. Like it, it's not going to help you. Yeah, I would argue if like you really need like you should only do that if you need to. Like you were seeing some performance losses, and then you write a comment. Hey, the, the reason we did it this way is because we were seeing some performance deficiencies or whatever. Yeah, and this is what it should look like. And if you need to understand it, this is what it's doing. And you're really clear about it. The, uh, uh, what's the one I, I see all the time? Uh, double tilde in JavaScript. Because it's uh, actually a rounding function. And it's it used to be faster like a couple of years ago. It's not anymore. But I see that. I'm just like, why wouldn't you just write like math.round or something like that? There's... There's better ways to do this right. than to do bitwise operations. There's almost always a better way to do it and than a bitwise. And it's more readable. And it's more readable. Bit unwise. Ooh. <laughs> let's, let's, let's submit that. Let's submit that to uh, That's a thing. <laughs> TC39. We're like, <laughs> but Stacy, bit unwise. It's funny because the, the bad code I usually see is in CSS. Like, yeah. people just don't really. Like, I saw, like, I recently came across this, like, page. It had, like, hundreds of media breakpoints. And it didn't support mobile. So I'm just <laughs> like, hey, right? It's just, it's it's just, just like, like, okay, okay, I'll like, okay, there's a lot of breakpoints here. And then, it, like, I shrink it, it's like, but this isn't mobile, like, friendly. Like, it doesn't even, right? And it's just like, they're like 700. So what, what is, is wow. wow. Yeah, CSS is actually probably one of my biggest pain points that I've ever dealt with. Almost in every code base, mm -hmm. I feel CSS is just the afterthought. I'm so thankful for things like CSS processors, post-CSS, like really breaking things up into chunks because a lot of the times, I can think of one company I walked into where it was just massive CSS files and there was chunks of it that were never even being used. And you actually are loading that to like your users and that is slow. Like when there's a lot of CSS that you do not need, that can add up quickly. And But I didn't know, I'm like, well, maybe it needs to be there. And so it takes so much time to try and get to the bottom of, is this being used? So yeah, CSS is one of my biggest pain points. Importance everywhere. Oh, that's Importance. Yeah, Importance like just to screw you. I'm so glad Brian, Brian Holt's not here today. Do not use IDs in your CSS. <laughs> <laughs> I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that, yeah. How often do each of you invest in code maintenance? When do you actually perform going back and cleaning up code? So this is actually like an awesome thing that my team started doing. Like, so we like, transition like fully to agile so we like do all the story time and stuff like that so like upfront when we estimate like features we will like include in the acceptance like criteria and try to identify like okay these are the places where we need to clean up code and we'll like add to our estimate and like how long it will take us to do this like story as like part of the like actual story to do it and it's like when code review to sign off it's like you clean this up right I feel like that is like a huge part of why tech that happens. It's like people will be like, oh, let's try this or like let's do this. And then they won't do like, like convert everything else to like what it should be, like the standard. That's fair. So you actually everything. bake that into the timeline. Yeah, exactly. I like that. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard because it's like if there's a competitive deadline, but then it's like we at least try to like spec out like, okay, this will eventually get done and we'll like add the to do's or we'll like have tech 
like we'll have like actually like weekly like web engineering meetings where we like, okay these are like some of the outstanding tech debt items that we need to address i do it before when it's feature complete it's so like when i'm done qa signed off on it then i go back and optimize because i know the state that it's in right now and i know if i change something it'll break so that to me is a good time to do code maintenance if I do it before, I'm prematurely optimizing because I'm going to end up rewriting this like six, seven times. So spending the time to make it maintainable doesn't make sense. But before it goes out the door, like before it's like baked in, that's when I go back and clean it up. Do you worry at that point you might reintroduce some bugs? <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Not really, because my code maintenance is just like adding comments, make sure the variables are clean. If I need to extract functionality to make it a bit, bit more modular, that's a good time to do it. But I know that I... The state that it's in, if it breaks, I'll know it pretty quickly. And that's the good time to do it. But One of the things that Bitbucket does, and I think it's maybe an Atlassian-wide practice, I have to, I should check that, but um, is they used to have, I guess, before I started, they did kind of the 20% time thing where you could do like innovation or fix, you know, clean up some tech debt or whatever. Um, and then they converted that because I was just like every Friday or whatever. And, and it seemed too disjointed. So they converted it. So every five weeks, we have an entire week that is dedicated to, it used to have like a, a particular theme, like performance week or tech debt week or innovation week. And you would do one of those particular things. And now we've switched it to being kind of like pick the thing that you want to do that week. And it, it could be any of those things. Um, and that's amazing. I've, I've never worked anywhere where we've had like a full week straight every five weeks to do the things that matter to you, that you, that you think will make the product better um, and remove tech debt. So the, the maintenance part of it, I do a lot of that kind of stuff. Like I will start fixing stuff that hasn't had a consistent pattern or like add some linting so that we can have ma more maintainable code or whatever, like sneak, sneak that stuff in because it's not part of like feature development, but it's also really necessary to keep the product healthy. And I'm super grateful that they do that kind of stuff. The linting part, I just want to say one thing, one way we helped address tech debt, like we made, like, I think it was Austin, like a dev on our team. He made it so that you can't merge your code if it doesn't pass the linter. Yep. And so oh, we have that too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Naturally. So that's like a great way to like help like ensure some level of code maintenance. Well, and then that yeah. way it's not someone, another engineer having to scream at you that, hey, comment your code or do this. It's like, no, the computer just won't allow you to commit that through Git. Right. And you're going to get screamed at by the computer, which is great. Exactly. Or rather than me screaming at you, I just link you to the computer screaming at you. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. We can just stop screaming, though. Just like, you know, PSA, let's just all stop screaming <laughs> in tech. It saves you from those, like, silly pull request comments where you're like, hey, actually, you shouldn't do this. Like, just make it a lint rule and you won't have this problem. Yeah, especially if it's something that your team has agreed on that, hey, this is the consistency, this is the style that we're using. Once that's set, then it's really easy. And then if you have someone onboarding new to the team, they just read that and they go, okay, well, that's what everyone's doing. Even if they don't agree with it, whatever, it's there. Like, this is how we do that, cool. At least it's consistent. Yeah, it's really interesting that, because um, I think some of like linting rules can be very much a matter of opinion, but how linters have kind of taken us out of the world of opinion to just, you know, standards. Um, and I think that's that's really, really powerful because, you know, someone might not listen to someone else, but, you know, the computer screams at them. <laughs> uh, 
encourages strongly. You know, then they'll listen. And I think that's really, I mean, I, I think, you know, we all kind of have a, a complex about that, but, you know, at least they'll listen in one way or another. So. Well, you might not be able to merge your code, so you yeah. kind of have to. Yeah, then you have a problem. No, I think, I think that's the beauty of it. Yeah. It's like, we no longer have to argue about it. We're like, it's so. And someone may want to change the lint rule later, then you can have an argument, but, you know, that's a conversation for another day. And changing the lint rule is a pain in the ass, because then you have to fix, you have to go, you have to go back yeah, and fix all that old that's code. True. That's very true. I mean, that kind of leads into another point of how do you actually deal with legacy code? If you came into a, maybe it's a new company or you're on a new project and you're stuck on that legacy code base, how do you approach that? God, that's a... I know everyone's like just I the feel, fear in their eyes. I feel like I've been doing this for the past few months and I'm about to embark on a new project that is very similar. Um, I have been re-architecting things now for at least six months and will be re-architecting things for the next six months. I think legacy code bases either require like a dedicated effort to bring it up to standard or to figure out what it's trying to do. Actually, I guess it really depends on how much that code base does, um, how much effort's involved, and if it's something that's a really critical part of um, your buy flow or your product, then it really does warrant, in my opinion, warrants the investment of just like heads down, we're going to make, we're going to make this, you know, work for us. Uh, otherwise, I think, you know, legacy code bases, perhaps you just, you can either chip, a, chip at them like one, one piece of code at a time or it, I think it just depends on how important it is to you. And now I'm rambling because I lost my thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you hammered on some good points. <laughs> I think for like our uh, like Bitbucket's been around for a while, um, not as as long as some other you know sites and stuff, but enough long enough that there are portions of it that might be considered um, quote legacy. Um, so a, a, an approach that that we're taking is to um, any new screens or any new features will be created in the new stack in the new like single page app world, whereas the other stuff will kind of remain where it is. But over time, you will slowly um, move the the most important features, the most used things, the the highest, the things that create the most mal, blah blah blah. Like those things will go into the the new stack, and you don't have to necessarily um, you pick that framework and that re-architecture once and all new things go into it and then you don't have to necessarily have that conversation about like every single time you do something where does what happens with it we have like a kind of an agreed upon pattern about new things how do you determine which ones are important features to move like and prioritize that's definitely i think i mean i'm sure all the developers have their opinions on that but a lot of it is based on data and the product managers you know, really set it, like figuring out strategically what, what the product should do and what's most important, so. Yeah, I like that. Data is key. Work at a place where they respect code maintenance and legacy code. I've been at places where they're just like, oh, why don't you just move on? Like, we'll get that later. It's like, no, we need to do this now because it won't get easier later. It only gets harder. Mm-hmm. And you have to work at a place that respects that and just like, no, we're going to clear two months and we're going to we're just going to do this migration. Yeah, because you carry that pain over and over and right. over again, and it's it's just never ending. What's also interesting is like if you're in the industry for long enough, you kind of learn these lessons. And and to that point, like if you're in a place where people don't understand that, then perhaps they run, 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 run away as fast as you can. No, but perhaps I just haven't been through like some of some more technically challenging situations, and that's that's something to keep an eye out for, especially when you like either in looking for jobs or assessing where you are now and in your career in general. To actually build upon that, actually, this is something I do notice like senior engineers do better than like junior engineers is they're able to communicate the value in like addressing those tech tech things. 
I think like a lot of junior people like naturally just like want to code and they're like, yeah, we can do it. Right. But like a senior engineer is able to be like, hey, like this is going to bite us really hard in the long run. And then we're going to have to like address it. And that's not going to be happy for it. I think sometimes, too, I think you've, you're right on track. There is like saying that this is what it's costing us and mm-hmm. really adding some value to it of understanding, you know, it's maybe it is a rough estimate of how much time it's actually taking the cost it is to push out new features and really quantifying that is that's that's huge it it really it gets stakeholders bought into it is like this is the value of us just cleaning up because to them they don't see under the hood it still works the same or ideally that's what happens is it works about the same maybe it's a little more performant but to them it's the same thing so i'll speak to the legacy code base i think evernote is very much experiencing this right now like it's kind of like already kind of known in the news but like Evernote right now is trying to transition to microservices Uh, we used to have like a very monolithic application on Google Web Toolkit and now we're transitioning to React and so I think like really to address legacy code bases one you really need to communicate the value of like why you're like switching over and why you need to address these things so for us like I think the thing to think about is Evernote and the, the beginning was very meant for personal work and now we're trying to be more collaborative. Um, and so naturally some of those, the design decisions we made for a very personal kind of oriented system do not transition to um, like a collaborative system. So we need to address these things like upfront like, and fully, right? And so I think another point is like tech debt doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, engineers didn't know what the heck they were doing, right? It doesn't mean that. It's just like a bunch of like acceptance, like a bunch of like use cases and like acceptance criteria changed and like you need to adapt to that and this and you need to address it. Business decisions change exactly. and that, that makes a big difference. And to your point too, is like, I mean, Evernote's what, seven years old now? Oh yeah. Yeah, so they've created a product and it's great and it's working. But eventually, yeah, it becomes, you know, becomes this monolithic code base that's really hard to maintain. And yeah, it needs to, certain things need to be rewritten. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's just that you've added on and added on and added on. And at some point you kind of have to take a step back and go, all right, we need to clean this up a bit. So I think honestly, in my mind, every couple of years, three years, maybe three to five, code should be rewritten. And I think that's what's nice with the front end uh, frameworks always changing is we get a new framework every once in a while. Like, ah, we want to jump on the new framework. (laughs) That's interesting too, though, because if you think about that, like migration in itself, like to a new, you know, technology is itself a form of code maintenance. But, and I think that's kind of strange too, because when you, I've been in, in situations, you know, working and it's like, well, we're about to move to this great thing and then everything completely deteriorates in the current code base, which becomes even harder to move it over. Um, And I think that you... Even I think maintenance and migration are very similar, but you also can't just completely let go. <laughs> you can't completely lose hope, I guess. But yeah, rewriting you know over and over again, it's it's pretty important. You have like a clear like a clear path. Like you you work really closely with product managers and like the business side to be like this is what we need to do and why. And if they understand it from the business perspective, that you can like have a plan that means that either you do wholesale rewrite. Like we're going to, the whole app, we're going to stop everything we're doing. No more features. We are actually rewriting to a different platform. Or we have this like migration path where some pieces will be done over time, but there's a plan to know that there's an end goal. Right. And like, and that's all clear. And like everybody understands I think that's important too, is that you can't do it all at once. It's 
I don't, I don't think, I've never seen that successfully done. And I know like I've walked into code bases where it's like really like painful. Um, One example was I walked into the company and it was like, they'd had a lot of contractors working on the code. And so everyone was kind of in there for a short period and then gone. So no one really cared about how this scaled or it was maintained. And one thing I did was went through the code base, outlined all the different things it needed fixed and started to prioritize them and then just chunked it off. And slowly, as I would ship a new feature, I'd maybe go back and like rewrite something. It was a pretty small team, so I was able to kind of do that myself. But you can't stop innovation. You can't stop shipping new features. No one's gonna buy into that. Yeah, your product managers, hey, guess what? We're gonna go away for a year (laughs) and we're gonna basically rewrite what you already have and that's, you're just not going to have anything new. That's just not going to be, it's not going to happen. So I, I think you do have to be, plan it out and chunk it out and see how are we going to support both code bases? I think that's really important. And I think to, to kind of speak to that point, like in order to, like in finding the balance, um, it's more than just like actually shipping stuff, but also like building trust between you and your product managers and your designers. Because without trust, you can't do the larger migration. You can't do the larger re-architectures and the cleanups. And if it's always kind of a part of the estimate, like um, Augustus was saying earlier, if it's built into every little project, then you build the trust between um, all of the other stakeholders in order to kind of, you know, it's kind of currency later to be like, okay, we're going to just yeah. scrap everything and start over. <laughs> Have fun. Um, <laughs> so I think, I think beyond just like actual code and software engineering, there is a really people component to it. There's the future people who read the code. There's the trust that you build with others in writing new and maintainable code. And it's, it's, it's both things. Well, one thing I want to add, too, is that I've learned, uh, even actually at Netflix, we've learned that is sometimes when you're changing a code base, it's almost better to change the technology, but not the design at the same time. Because if you're trying to measure the difference between that, you can get really, really stuck in trying to decide, oh, wait, did the design change the performance of if you're looking at metrics or is it the actual code that changed it? You don't really know. So that actually makes it harder too when you're speaking to designers or product managers. You're like, no, 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 it's not going to change to the user. They're not going right. to notice a difference. We're just changing the underlying code. And that's like, sometimes that's kind of scary because they're like, wait, we're not doing any difference. Like, what's the point? I actually think that's interesting because just like the project I've been working on for the past six months, we've been re architecting our, our sign up flow. And even though nothing looks different, the idea behind the re-architecture and the code maintenance is that actually it may be more resilient. So it may not look different, but it, there are still functional differences between the old code base and the new code base because the more clean, if you want to call it, the more extensible, the more scalable, the less bugs, the better user experience. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. I like to sum it up as your code should live a good life. It should, it should <laughs> oh. come into the world and not like disrupt things too much. It's like, just kind of exist. It should grow up, maybe mature, maybe scale a little bit, but still not be too disruptive, but like do what it should do. And then it should die a good death, like be able to pull it out without like taking down the entire system. Yeah, yeah. And like, that's all the code I want to write. It, it just, it lives a good life. It, it had its time, then it's time to go. And that's And it, it should be easily killed. Right. <laughs> Perhaps code is then in that sense, kind of like a fruit fly or goldfish. They have a really short lifespan, but they live happy lives. Yeah. And they don't disrupt everything else. Nope, they're stuck in fishbowls. Except except for that artificial intelligence code that's like (laughs) (laughs) self-aware. That's next week's episode. (laughs) 
All right. At the end of each episode, we like to share pics of things that we've found interesting and would like to share with our listeners. Let's go around the table and share our picks for today's episode. Mars, you want to start it off? Sure. Coming off of Jem's really cute description of the way code should live its life, um, one of the thing, one of my picks is um, an app called Plant Nanny. <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous. Um, I've obviously been on this like really big health kick recently, and part of that is drinking a lot of water. And so this app actually encourages you to drink water because the water feeds the plant, and the plant is this like it's kind of like a tamagotchi for water drinking in a sense. <laughs> um, wait, wait, you're gonna have to explain tamagotchi for people. Oh, younger wow. oh goodness um, yeah we're, we're old <laughs> um wow okay so i mean tamagotchi this little digital creature that you would give to like a seven-year-old and, and tell them to try to kind of raise it and this is like a really rude introduction to child rearing <laughs> it's not the same no of course not of course not but it um you're supposed to feed it and water it and play with it and keep it happy and all sorts of things um the plant nanny you know the plants in my plant nanny app aren't quite as demanding um they'll stay there and they won't die if i don't water them but anyways they're really cute if you're looking for a cool way to keep track of your water intake i recommend it oh so it's not an app to remind you to water plants it's to remind you to water yourself yes it's a it's an app to help you keep track of how much you are drinking and the benefit is that your plant kind of smiles at you like waves at you it like grows up the more water you drink and you know leading a healthy lifestyle is also about drinking a lot of water so anyways (laughs) Um, Second pick is uh, I'm working on a new talk and it's not something that's very well formed. I have no idea where this talk is going, but um, I recently learned about mind mapping which is just a way to brain dump and then potentially organize later. Um, so I've been using an app called MindNode. Um, a really close friend of mine used it for a recent blog post. He really recommends it. Even if you don't like MindNode, I recommend mind mapping because if you're trying to formulate thoughts and have no idea where they're gonna end up, this is probably a good way to start. <laughs> awesome, Augustus, what do you have? Uh, yeah, my two picks, uh, one is Ali Wong. I just watched her uh, show yesterday Uh, she's on tour right now um but yeah i think definitely check out baby cobra on netflix if you haven't so you actually you saw her live Uh, yeah i saw her live and she's just awesome she's a legend like honestly her jokes are so on point and she's just like so like um she did like ethnic studies like for her ba and like she's just like so culturally aware her like jokes are just like so great and i i feel like she just like she's just so original she like i've watched a lot of comedians on like laugh factory but she just brings like a lot to like the comedy world so um yeah definitely check her out um the next one is this like deep mind article uh basically deep mind partnered with blizzard so that they're using starcraft 2 as a platform to um try out machine learning to train artificial intelligence so like like ai and like games are like pretty complex but like if you can like use machine learning to like like observe like humans and interactions and like the article has like a bunch of like really cool things like for for people who are like really big fans of starcraft 2 and stuff i definitely recommend checking it out it's like really cool didn't like ai beat the best dota player in the world recently it was like elon musk yes his company yeah the ai like beat someone in dota like the world the world yes i saw that i saw an article or something about that recently so that is pretty damn cool Mm. that's actually scary it's coming for us computers are taking over it's coming (laughs) gem what do you have 
let's see. My first pick is Stacy's haircut. It is amazing. We will get a picture and post it on Twitter. I hadn't seen it in person. It is a great haircut. We'll, we'll take lots Thanks, of pictures. Jim. Just make it really <laughs> uncomfortable for you. Uh, my second pick is The Defenders on Netflix. But actually not the whole show. Just episode three. Because the show is like, it's just okay so far. But there's a point in episode three and Ryan... Anybody who's seen it knows exactly what moment I'm talking about. We were like, oh, yeah, it just got good. Well, because, it, all right, the first couple episodes are very slow. And then there's a point in episode three where you're like, oh, shit. Exactly. That was my exact reaction. <laughs> I was like, oh, it just I was got good. I having this conversation earlier with Yuri, and he's like, the show is going nowhere. <laughs> Wait till episode Wait till three. Episode three. Yeah, I have communicated that yeah. to him. <laughs> uh, and my third and last pick is Mars Talk. Speaking of maintainability, she has a talk at NordChest for best practices for usable components. Thank you. Thank Nordic you Nordic is fantastic, and Mars fantastic speaker. So if you are in Stockholm, that's where it's at, right? Yes. Yes, you're in Stockholm. Check it out. And I it's have stickers also. <laughs> stickers. stickers. What, what kind of stickers? Netflix stickers. Oh, you front and happy stickers. Oh. oh, yeah. I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get the She Rules sticker. Also. Oh, those yeah. are good. Yeah, I'm trying to get more of those. Great, Stacy. What do you have? Uh, let's see. So, in addition to um, screaming into a sheet cake, <laughs> I have uh, two picks that are not tech related because also everything's a garbage fire. And so I like to listen to music to escape the garbage fire. So my two picks are uh, Kiosmos is an Icelandic band. Um, they kind of play like minimal experimental techno. Um, I came across them over time from like listening to Olafur Arnolds and uh, Janice Rasmussen. Really awesome. I saw them at Icelandic Airwaves in 2014, um, which was really great. So good new track from them. And then the second pick is the... A subsequent, so like Olafur Arnolds, if you're not familiar with him, you can explore some of his music. Particles is a very beautiful track. Um, uh, piano based strings, singing, lovely. Very peaceful, very good thing to code to. Ooh, great. I'll add it to my playlist. Yeah, and we'll add it to the front end happy hour playlist. Right on. All right, I have two picks. I love that Jem uh, picked Mars's talk because I'm actually picking, <laughs> uh, since we're talking about code maintenance, I'm actually picking Jem's talk that's in Brazil JS. He'll be talking about code maintenance, which is great. I've seen the talk as a rough draft. It's really good so far, and I can expect it's only going to be better when he actually performs it. So definitely if you're in Brazil and you're going to Brazil JS, check it out. Are they going to have it filmed? I believe so. Okay, good. So we'll at least be able to uh, share that with the listeners as well if they aren't able to make it to Brazil with you. It's Great. a keynote. It is a keynote. Ooh, congrats. Yeah. I'm, I'm, oh. in the, uh, I'm in the hangover slot, which is not the first day talk. It's the first talk of the second day. So, you know, so everybody's hungover from the party. The you can day. pump people up. You know, that's a good way that you can start off. It's like, hey, everyone's hungover. I don't give a shit. We're going. Like, get them <laughs> going. Doing live. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> Lots of dog gifs. Ooh, that's good. That yeah. <laughs> My second pick is actually if you want to come help Netflix maintain their code, we actually have a senior UI engineer role on our team that Mars Gemini both work on. So yeah, come apply. Uh, I'll add a sh link in the show notes. And yeah, love to hear from you. Great. Well, thank you all for listening to today's episode. We're also very thankful for everyone that's left us feedback and ratings on iTunes. It's really helped us spread the word about the podcast. We appreciate the help. Any last words? Love over hate. Oh, cheers. Yeah, cheers to that. Bugs. Love beats hate. Bugs. Cheers. Love over hate. <laughs> Can't cheers without the keyword. <laughs>